Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris. This is episode 15, The Cradle of Agriculture. We start this week's story at a point 12,000 years ago, but I now want to make a definitive transition in the way that I refer to time. 12,000 years ago, the year was 10,000 BCE. Inhabitants of the earth did not know it was 10,000 BCE because the labelling of years is a very modern concept. Essentially, it is based on the Gregorian calendar, which is the most widely used calendar in the world. And even though it is associated with the Catholic Church, it has become convenient for non-Christian countries and organisations to use it when dealing with matters of global significance, such as global business. 10,000 BCE was known as 10,000 BC, which stood for before Christ. However, it is considered to be more secular in the modern world to use BCE, before the Common Era, as a direct replacement. The current year is 2018 CE, or Common Era was referred to previously as AD 2018, which stands for Anno Domini, or in its full sense, Anno Domini Nostri Jesu Christi, which in Latin is in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't invented in the year 1 CE, but what's actually a 6th century creation which retrospectively dated years back to the life of Jesus Christ. There was no year zero. The year before AD 1 was 1 BC. Around that period, however, people were more likely to refer to years in the name of the ruler and the nominal year that he had held his post. Enough about all of that though. For the purpose of this podcast, we will now use BCE. So in the context of our historical story, the year is around 10,000 BCE. Climate change. The last glacial maximum refers to the last time that the polar ice sheets reached the limit of their growth before receding to the point where they are today during this current interglacial in which we live in today. Deglaciation began in the Northern Hemisphere around 20,000 years ago and the sea levels began to rise significantly around 5,000 years afterwards. Global temperatures were rising and subsequently the environment was changing, as we would expect. 
we can see a large number of glacial lakes around the world, which is a parting gift to us from the receding glaciers, leaving melted glacier water in a recess in the land. The most well known being the Great Lakes of North America, which contain over a fifth of the world's freshwater. With more water being released from the polar ice caps, precipitation increased meaning that there was more moisture in the air and more rainfall on the land. Grasslands were becoming more abundant and more plants and trees were growing, which in turn was providing more feeding opportunities for animals and also us. Human populations were growing as a consequence of these growing resources. Tribes of hunter-gatherers were apparently doing very well, spreading further and further outwards and colonising most of the habitable world. There is a belief that at around 11,000 BCE, the Earth's climate began to stabilise. The previous 10,000 years saw global temperatures rise by maybe around 4 or 5 degrees Celsius. The seasons started to take shape in the way that we would know them today, with dry, hot summers being commonplace. This would favour those annual plants with seasonal routines. We call these annual plants. The summer annuals sprout during springtime before flowering and dying at the end of the summer, leaving seed to germinate the following year. The winter annuals tend to germinate in the autumn and blossom at the end of winter. Hunter-gatherers. So, before embracing agriculture, the human being was traditionally a hunter-gatherer, somewhat nomadic, moving from place to place, exploring foraging and hunting opportunities. Seasonal activity would have certainly existed. The earth didn't change its axis tilt during the beginnings of the current interglacial, so seasons have always existed, but just not in the way that we know them today. There would have been a life cycle among plants and animals that humans would have had to adapt their lifestyles to suit. So it makes sense that many human tribes would have had summer camps where conditions were more favourable to survival at a particular time of year. As we keep mentioning during this podcast, we have a natural urge to want to put dates on things. We want to say that the Neolithic Revolution, which is the name that we give to the human transition from nomadic hunting and gathering to settled agriculture, started at a certain time. It would be very convenient to discover that there was a convention in which global delegates gathered in the Middle East on the 1st of January 10,000 BCE and agreed from that day humans were going to start farming crops and livestock. That did not happen and as usual we have had to find over and over again that events emerged over a large amount of time. So then surely our transition to agricultural society must have originated slowly and emerged from existing behaviours. If we go back to the last podcast where we summarised the entire podcast series so far, I mentioned the fact that some communities 
were scorching landscapes in order to create hunting opportunities. This certainly deserves explanation. A study into the historical landscapes of Australia demonstrate that indigenous Aboriginal Australians were actively burning landscapes. They were not just setting fire to everything and creating wildfires. They were actually creating controlled fires for the purpose of changing a small area into a fruitful hunting ground. Fire tolerant plants were able to germinate and grow again, creating a more open ground for those herbivorous animals who preferred to graze in open environments and giving the human a much better opportunity to kill and feed. This practice was named fire stick farming. Fire stick farming shows that those who were doing it had a very clear knowledge of the ecosystems of their lands and how they operated as an ecosystem. This shows a high degree of intelligence and arguably advanced from the practical project planning of the creation of fire-hardened, ochre-coloured jewellery, pots and tools that we have discovered during previous podcasts. Here we see the understanding of nature and how it works over long periods of time, demonstrating the human ability to be able to influence the long-term future of an environment for ultimate gain, which may go against our archaic nature to grab what we can for today's needs. The fire stick farming culture of Aboriginal Australians was something discovered by European settlers when they arrived in Australia in the late 18th century. The question is, was this culture localised to Australia, or could it have been a precursor to the Neolithic Revolution elsewhere? The truth is that there has not been enough evidence discovered, but it is interesting to learn of how humans are able to develop an understanding of how to control the natural environment to suit their needs. The Younger Dryas Possibly after 11,000 BCE, there was a significant climatic jolt. The climate had been steadily warming since the last glacial maximum, approximately 10 to 15,000 years previous. But at around 11,000 BCE, there was a sudden drop in temperatures, which was probably triggered by a conflict of water temperature flows created by the increasing global temperatures. It was quite exclusive to the Northern Hemisphere and was apparently not the only time something of this nature happened during a gradual transition from last glacial maximum to the current interglacial. The significance of the Younger Dryas is that it appears to symbolise the end of an era and the beginning of a new one. It marks the end of the Upper Paleolithic period of the Stone Age and also the end of the geological Pleistocene Epoch, which is the Ice Age that triggered the Quaternary Glaciation which we are currently living in. During the Younger Dryas, 
the temperatures radically dropped in the northern hemisphere, so dramatically that some humans would have experienced the drop during their lifetime. Although this was not the only temperature jolt of the transition to the current interglacial, it is considered to be the last jolt. Since the Younger Dryas, the Earth's climate has been comparatively consistent, which has enabled current ecosystems to begin to become firmly established. However, the Younger Dryas is thought to have had an abrupt effect on the vegetation of the Northern Hemisphere. The forest vegetation that life on Earth had become adapted to living around was suddenly cold back in favour of more cold tolerant vegetation. Both humans and animals were forced to quickly adapt or be pushed out of the new ecosystem. Natufian culture. Now, I wonder how many of you recall the Kibara cave. Well, this is where we discovered Moshi, the 60,000 year old Neanderthal fossil which was discovered with its hyoid bone, the bone which sits in the human larynx that facilitates our speech. Moshi may have met a Homo sapiens and he was quite likely to have been deliberately buried. The Kibara cave is likely to have been occupied for a few thousand years after Moshi's death. However, we do believe that it was reoccupied again around 18,000 years ago by Homo sapiens. And as such, the people who were there are referred to as the Kibaran culture. It is believed that the Kibarans used tools containing microliths and even used bows and arrows for hunting. It is believed to have been associated with domesticated dogs. The culture is called an epipaleolithic culture purely because it occupied the Levant and Sinai, prime areas for the emergence of agriculture. The term epipaleolithic refers to cultures that were making the transition from the Paleolithic Stone Age to the Neolithic Revolution. This is because Gibaran excavations have uncovered grain grinding tools which demonstrate a deliberate preparation of wild cereals. It is also believed that Kibarans migrated to summer camps before returning to winter caves over the course of their year. At around the time of the Younger Dryas, we can see a transitioning culture. The new supplanting culture is referred to as the Natufian culture, named after Wurdi and Natuf, otherwise known as Shukbar Cave in the modern-day Palestinian West Bank, although it is thought that their culture occupied most of the Levant. It is believed that the Natufians were one of the first cultures to become sedentary, in other words, settled in one place. Now, hunter-gatherers are thought of as being nomadic, so let's investigate the Natufians 
and their sedentary lifestyle and what that means in terms of the Neolithic Revolution. Well, the first thing to mention is that some Natuthians were still thought to be nomadic and some were thought to still have summer camps, but we can definitely see a change in culture and it looks like it took place over thousands of years as demonstrated by the lifestyle of the preceding Kabarans. The grinding stones were now showing evidence of processing seeds and even meats. The grinding stones would also come in handy for the grounding down of ochre, which was doubtlessly being used for art and ritual. Now, if Natufians were grinding wild cereals, then it is altogether possible that they were being forced to consider this to be a greater part of their diet if the younger Dryas had killed a lot of the flora species that them and their ancestors were able to enjoy. And maybe it was this that was forcing the Tufians to learn quickly about these cereals and understand that they could cultivate it. Populations would have been expanding, so it may not have been possible to feed large communities of people on just the wild cereals being foraged. This may be when one bright spark started preparing an area to plant the seeds of these cereals, understanding the yearly cycle of these crops. This may have been able to guarantee a supply for the entire community. It may have been possible that Natufians could have been using the slash and burn technique of burning an area which could be used as a planting area for the cultivation of the wild cereals that they wanted to grow more of to potentially create more yield from this one species in the absence of others, thanks to the destructiveness of the younger Dryas on the environment. The problem is that by burning an area of its vegetation to make clear space for cultivation, the resulting clearing is not too fertile thanks to being destroyed by fire. And this means that humans had to move to another area and make a new clearing before the original land would be suitable for a successful new season of growth. The fire stick farming method, mentioned earlier in the podcast used by Aboriginal Australians, has similar methods to the slash and burn techniques of the modern world. So if these methods were being used by the Natufians, then it wouldn't surprise me if the advantages of landscape manipulation was known for many thousands of years. It wasn't always necessary at times when there were many choices of food and not many mouths to feed. The Natufian culture is particularly interesting to us because archaeological evidence of advanced microlithic tools. Microliths were something we explored in episode 12 on the hunter-gatherers. We can also find evidence of ritual burials, such as the burial dating to around 10,000 BCE of a female at the Hillazon Tachtit cave in modern Israel. The woman is buried with the bones of many species of animal, including an eagle wing. The eagle wing is suggested to be indicative of the requirement to fly to the afterlife, which may suggest that the woman 
was considered to be a shaman, which is something we looked at in episode 13 on Art and Ritual. At another Natufian burial site in Israel, namely Ain Malaha, we have discovered a human buried with a puppy dog, which is strong evidence for an established domestic dog being present, something we looked at in the summary episode 14. The Fertile Crescent The beginnings of agriculture are attributed to a geographical area called the Fertile Crescent, a term which has been in mainstream use for at least the last 100 years. The eastern reaches of the Fertile Crescent start at the Persian Gulf, where the mouth of the Tigris River empties. The Tigris is the river in which the Euphrates River empties, but both rivers run parallel together in a line right through the middle of modern-day Iraq before reaching Syria and southern Turkey. The Fertile Crescent then stretched south across the Levantine coast of the Mediterranean Sea through Lebanon, Jordan, Israel and Palestine, following the coast through the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt and as far as the Nile River. The Mediterranean island of Cyprus has also been included. The climate of the Fertile Crescent after the Younger Dryas was seasonal. Hot and dry summers were in turn followed by cool and wet winters. There were a number of altitudes which allowed a variety of vegetation to succeed in this area. One of the wild plants that had prospered in the Fertile Crescent both before and after the Younger Dryas was Emma wheat. Humans had been foraging Emma wheat for many years before the Neolithic Revolution. One excavated site in modern Israel called Olaho provides us with some evidence of this, with wild grains of Emma wheat being radiocarbon dated to 17,000 BCE. Another very similar plant that was abundant at the time and believed to have been foraged and consumed is einkorn wheat. In their wild archaic forms, both emma and einkorn wheats are very similar kinds of grass plants. The stem grows and produces seeds which can be harvested. Naturally, the seeds would shatter from the original plant and germinate in the ground wherever they landed. Humans would have certainly realised this through observation and maybe due to the restriction of wild vegetation caused by the younger dryas, maybe through increased population pressure creating high competition for wild foraging opportunities and maybe a combination of both and maybe due to other factors, humans started cultivating the wheat in order to guarantee a supply. Foraging wild grass was obviously not good enough for the current circumstances, so humans learned and started to control the plant's growth cycle and location to suit their needs. Over time, humans would unintentionally select the healthier of the cultivated wheat to replant, disposing of the lower quality wheat. This in turn would lead to a survival of the fittest wheat 
where the higher quality wheat would evolve to become the standard, while the lesser quality would only continue to grow in wild conditions. Therefore the cultivated wheat was becoming distinct from the wild variety and would therefore become the domestic variety. The domestic variety would become physically stronger to avoid the shattering process that would spread the seeds away. Humans required the seeds to stay intact on the plant for an easy harvest. Husks that surround the seeds would become stronger, keeping any ripened seeds within the plant. Over time, the plants with the larger seeds would be selected in favour of the smaller seeds, meaning the domestic wheat would be suited to its requirement as a human foodstuff. However, where humans were cultivating wheat, there would also be weeds growing among them. And these weeds ultimately became a very significant part of the entire story of the domestication of wild plants for food. Vavilovian mimicry. I'm going to introduce you to a very interesting character called Nikolai Vavilov, who was born in Moscow in the Russian Empire in 1887. Vavilov quickly gained a keen interest in agriculture, which was a very important subject for Russia, as life was not always easy for those who farmed the land. Vavilov was motivated by the desire to overcome the difficulties caused by failing crops and devoted his life to understanding agriculture and looking for solutions. By working on the science of agriculture, Vavilov was working in one of the most important fields of influence over Russia's general health as a nation of people. He graduated from Moscow University and became the director of the Lenin All-Union Academy of Agricultural Sciences in Leningrad, where he gathered a huge collection of the world's plant seeds to aid agricultural research. The seed collection was generally recognised as precious. By the 1930s, Russia was a part of a Soviet Union being led by Joseph Stalin. The Soviet Union was actively trying to distance itself from the Western world as the European continent began to spiral towards the Second World War. Vavilov was an agronomist, which I can loosely describe as a scientist of the agriculture of plants. A fellow contemporary Soviet agronomist was a man called Trofim Lysenko, whose ideas regarding agriculture went against the more traditional ideas of Vavilov. This may not have been such a big problem, but Stalin was looking for an expert with the answers to the agricultural problems of the Soviet Union, and his faith was with Lysenko's ideas. Vavilov was out of favour with Stalin, and against a man who Stalin was backing on a subject very important to the health of the Soviet Union as a nation. Lysenko wanted Vavilov out of the way of his scientific ideas and Stalin might just be happy to make it happen. 
Stalin had Vavilov arrested while in the Ukraine in 1940. He was imprisoned in Saratov, which is in the modern Volga Federal District of Russia, and he was accused of being a British spy. Ultimately, he would die in prison in 1943, reportedly of starvation. Now, if we go back to our story of the humans in the Fertile Crescent learning how to domesticate and plant their own emma wheat and einkorn wheats, I mentioned the fact that weeds were growing among the wheat. The weeds are significant because in some cases when the wheat was getting harvest, some of the weeds would accidentally get harvest with it. This would mean that those weeds that in any way resembled the wheat would ultimately end up getting replanted alongside the wheat and ultimately actually appearing to look exactly like the wheat due to the human selection process. Our friend Nikolai Vavilov actually recognised this happened after making his own scientific studies into it. Thanks to Vavilov's research, we have discovered that one of these weeds, which was accidentally selectively bred to look like wheat, is what we call today rye. Rye is a crop that was once a weed, and through a process known as Vavilovian mimicry, became part of the crops that humans grew, when all they wanted to actually do was grow other wheat. It was also believed that oats became a part of the human diet for the same reason that it is a Vavilovian mimic. Another grass that is believed to have been domesticated between 10,000 BCE and 8000 BCE in the Fertile Crescent is barley. So now we have wheat and barley and the Vavilovian mimics rye and oats, which all became cereal crops. Domestication of animals. Well, we've barely scratched the surface and we're already closing in on our time for this week's podcast. However, we will as ever explore the different aspects of these agricultural societies more closely in upcoming podcasts, so please don't worry. Logically, it makes sense for humans to domesticate plants before animals. Plants don't tend to run away from anybody, so it's much easier to keep them under control. If humans went to great effort to start farming crops then it would make sense for them to not want to travel too far from their farmland therefore seasonal movements would have had to have been kept to an absolute minimum to take care of their yield and not lose it to another tribe therefore in order to hunt you would have had to likely have gone away in hunting parties potentially having to stay away from base for a long amount of time and with no guarantee of success All kills would have had to have been carried back to camp, so there would have been a real conflict of interests. The origins of animal domestication has proved to be a very tricky subject. On the face of it, with all the science available, these days it shouldn't be quite so tricky. 
it could be a subject where answers start appearing through DNA research and the likes over the next decade or two. Let's explain the issue by starting with one animal that we know to be one of our first domesticated animal species, the sheep. There are hundreds of different breeds of domestic sheep around today. They are naturally useful for their meat, their milk and their skins and have been selectively bred for their wool. When we look at the wild sheep of the world, scientists have done a solid job of categorising them into six separate species. But it's not altogether convincing. These six species are separated into many subspecies and arguments exist over whether some of these subspecies are actually a species themselves. Very messy indeed. A candidate for the wild ancestor of the domestic sheep in the Fertile Crescent would be the mouflon. The mouflon does not have an aggressive tendency compared to other animals and would have naturally avoided predation by staying close to its herd. This could have favoured the man with a loyal domesticated dog. A trained dog may very well have had the speed required to keep the herd together and we all know that the domestic dog has a desire to please its owner. Of course, sheep farmers employ the same services of a domesticated dog to control a herd of sheep to this very day. The mouflon traditionally has a short-haired dark brown coat which isn't particularly useful for knitting woolly jumpers. However, it does appear that in the first couple of thousand years of keeping this animal in a domestic manner, that a bit of selective breeding would have produced sheep with more woolly and long-haired coats and the skills that humans were applying to the preparation of plant fibres would have been used to create woollen objects. An animal very similar to the sheep that is thought to have been domesticated at a similar time in a similar area would have been the goat. The wild animal supposed to be the ancestor of the domesticated goat is the Bezoa ibex. One site that has uncovered evidence of domesticated goats is Nevelechori, which is in the south of modern Turkey. The site appears to date back to around 8400 BCE and also has evidence of einkorn wheat domestication. Initial DNA studies suggest that goat domestication could date back as far as 10,000 BCE, but we're just not sure. We'd love to put this all in some sort of order. First it was plants, then it was animals. First it was wheat, then it was barley. First it was sheep, then it was goats. Now, the History of the World podcast doesn't like definitive dates purely because it is not realistic. The reality is that some tribes would have favoured sheep over goats. Some tribes may not have been near to goats but closer to sheep. Some tribes would have settled near their wheat yield then domesticated animals. Then someone from that tribe would have joined another tribe to spread the human genome in a responsible manner and shared the secret of animal domestication even if that tribe was still foraging for wheat. It's a mishmash 
hodgepodge of emergence here, there and everywhere. Collectively, the tribes would have understood that it was likely the best way to guarantee survival in a world of growing population and limited wild resources. Next time, we will continue the story of agriculture by investigating the emergence of agriculture in other parts of the world totally unconnected to the Fertile Crescent and exploring the different resources available wherever humans happen to be. I'd like to take the time to thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope we've moved into the Neolithic smoothly and we're going to explore some of the other animal domestications in next week's podcast uh, the spread of farming there's a lot of interesting information coming up next week i'd also like to really thank ryan from the history of ancient greek podcast he tirelessly promotes other podcasts that are out there especially history ones and he's been kind enough to mention me on his facebook page and I really appreciate that, Ryan. It's a very, uh, very warm-hearted gesture. And hopefully we can push and pull listeners from each podcast to each other and maybe promote some other podcasts. The History of Ancient Greece podcast is an incredible piece of work and I highly recommend you listen to it. Really well-structured. And he often has guests on there as well, which he comparatively looks at their work compared to his work and likewise great stuff ryan and uh, thank you ever so much for the mention we got an email from a gentleman called daniel saying hi mate i wanted to get in touch and just tell you what a fantastic job you're doing with your podcast as a history fan especially of prehistory and ancient times i'm often on the lookout for a podcast that covers these periods so far my search has yielded entertaining but shallow overviews or dry, cynical ramblings. Yours, however, is interesting, informative and compelling. I hope you never run out of history to discuss. As while ever you're podcasting, I'll be listening. Thanks and all the best from an Australian living in Singapore, Daniel. Well, you cannot run out of history to discuss. It's such a deep and interesting subject, and it's part of the reason why there's so many interesting podcasts out there in the podcast world you really have your pick of the bunch now when you want to discover anything about history there will be something out there for you i'm sure thanks so much for getting in touch daniel it really does mean a lot my old friend keegan decker got in touch with the podcast again keegan's from the penn state university studies anthropology um quite vigorously and has many opinions regarding the Neanderthal Cro-Magnon relationship in Europe through the Organasian period. And very interesting reading once again, but so much information in your email. And um, off the back of it, it's inspired me to create a discussion forum for the podcast. So you can find that through the Facebook page and uh, a link's been posted on Twitter for it if you want the link address just get in touch with the podcast um it's history of the world podcast at mail.com you can use the blog page history of the world.com history of the world podcast.com to find the contact uh, link 
and email me through that. So please do get involved in the discussion forum. This is really what I want. I want people to interact, share their ideas and promote the discussion of history. That's the best way in which we get our history facts much more down the road is by discussion. Well, that's about it for this week. I'm going to sign off now. Next week and um, the subsequent weeks coming up, we're going to be talking about Neolithic cultures and uh, more agriculture. We've gone through a lot of the science this week, so we've got a lot of it out of the way and um, it should be a little bit more easier to listen to in the next couple of podcasts. So I look forward to presenting those to you. And until next week, have a great week and we'll see you again. The History of the World podcast is hosted by Audioboom. It is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, Podcast Republic, Stitcher and TuneIn. You can also find it on Deezer, Google Podcasts and Radio Public. Feel free to email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter 